the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Just about seven minutes after six on a Thursday, the sun is starting to peek up over the horizon. I'm sitting at home at my uh, dinner table. I don't know exactly where JR and uh, Seth are here uh, at their respective places. Where are you today, JR? I know you're at, at your house or you're at the kitchen table. I'm sitting on the couch. Okay. A little, you little got more comfortable this morning. Got your uh, coffee? No coffee. No coffee Sadly, yet. But I feel like I feel I feel better than normal without coffee. So oh wow! It's, uh, I mean, just today though, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I was telling Seth, that's my infusion of brain cells in the morning. Uh, I got to yeah. have a couple of cups of coffee before I can really uh, get the day going. Seth, where are you today? Good morning, Dave. I like you. I'm at the kitchen table, but I decided to skip the 30 seconds it would take to brew coffee <laughs> and just opted straight for the Dr. Pepper this morning. Okay. Well, really you're getting, things off. getting yourself some, getting yourself some uh, uh, caffeine. Well, today yeah. is a historic day in history. Do you guys know what happened this day at 529 in the morning, about a half hour ago? Uh, on uh, today in 1945. Hmm. 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 Something to think about. What do you think, Seth? You kind of you follow history a little bit. Does this day stand out in your mind ever, any? Well, it feels like it should now that you've mentioned it. It <laughs> can't possibly be your birthday. You're only 21. That's right. You, can't see it. you got it. Well, on this day in 1945, out in the deserts of Alamogorda, New Mexico, the first first atomic bomb was detonated. Mm. Mm. The mushroom cloud rose seven and a half miles into the air. The, The tower that the bomb had been on was vaporized. The uh, scientists were five and a half miles away from the explosion and still had hurricane-force winds go past them. And the flash, of course, if they had not had the goggles on, would have blinded them. Uh, Today, in 1945, the world was altered. I mean, seriously, Mm. was altered. What was interesting is that the, uh, the initial budget for what became the Manhattan Project. And I hope people have, you know, followed that. It was called the Manhattan Project because it started in Manhattan. 
but if you go over to Tennessee to Knoxville, there's a place right there where you can see a lot of the history of how they were uh, getting the uranium ready for the first atomic bomb. I've been out to Alamogorda, and that crater is still there from uh, the first uh, atomic bomb as well as a lot of other craters. But uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty spooky standing out there in the desert, and all you hear is the wind blowing and looking at that crater, and you think how the world changed. We were going to first use the, uh, the bomb on the Germans, uh, but that wasn't necessary. They uh, surrendered. So we ended up having to use it on the Japanese because they had not and would not. So uh, that all changed uh, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, guys, there you got your day in history, 1945, July 16th at 529 in the morning, early in the morning. So it was dark when that thing went off. It sure wasn't light out there in the desert, that's for sure. So um, that, that must have been that's some movement. You know, a lot, a lot of, you know, Oppenheimer and Fermi and a lot of them who had worked on it, the physicists who worked on that bomb, were... Uh, totally taken back by really they knew a lot of power was going to come off of that i mean einstein said it could be made into a course of weapon he was all for that uh of course he thought at the time that he was behind it that it would be used on the germans and uh, he knew what the germans were doing to the jewish people at the time and uh, it was um thing went off and none of those physicists all they had had going for them was, you know, their slide rules and what they thought would happen. When they saw what happened, totally changed their their perspective of it. It was so powerful, they were blown away by it. In fact, uh, uh, Oppenheimer ended up being blacklisted a few years later because he was against the development of the hydrogen bomb. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but... Uh, uh, course the hydrogen bomb was i forget 10 20 times uh, more destructive than just the the atom bomb one of those atom bombs today it's like a a little black cat going off when you think about all the other uh, nuclear mm-hmm. weapons yeah. that we have it, it, it and it was what 15,000 tons of tng is what they said 15 thousand tons that's just incredible so a little history for us today a little sobering history uh now yeah. there's there's a lot of people and i, I want to get your eyes take on this a lot of people say it brought us closer to the end of the world so to speak we all know about the uh the uh what is it uh, the doomsday clock that's sitting out there and they move the minute hand from time to time up uh, that man is coming closer to the end and I say that it saved lives. Uh, there's a lot of times that I do believe that we we might have seen more wars and and loss of life, but because uh, the countries had uh, these types of weapons, they stepped back from war and didn't fight. What do you guys think? Well, Dave, I think it was interesting. You know, Chris Wallace has a new book out relatively new called countdown 1945 oh really i didn't know that a shame because i should have i should have known your trivia my phone is standing on a stack of books that <laughs> a little taller and closer and one of them is his book ironically and i remember he was on a book tour and he was on the view 
which is just a great source of uh, information, naturally. <laughs> and Joey Behar asked Chris Wallace, Chris, why did we have to drop the bombs? The Japanese were going to surrender. Couldn't oh, we yeah. have saved lives by not dropping them? No. And it was Chris Wallace that pointed out, of course, the bombs were not dropped back to back. There's a significant amount of time between them. And yep. the Japanese did not surrender after the first 24 hours following the first bomb. And he said, Joy, what that, they had, they surrendered after the second bomb. <laughs> they didn't surrender before the first one. What made mm-hmm. you think they were going to surrender at all, regardless of the atomic bomb? So I think you're right. There's sort of a, a movement to say we could have saved lives had we not dropped them. But, you know, if you start looking at, at the number of lives and American lives, too, that could have been lost uh, had we gone through with that fight. It, it, it's hard to argue uh, the other side of, of that issue, and we'll just ultimately never know because yeah. of the decisions that were made. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, Truman said it was the toughest decision he ever made to say that mm-hmm. they're going to drop that because you know that was a bomb that was dropped specifically on uh, a large center of civilian life, but we had already transversed that that uh, philosophical argument during World War II. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to your latter point, Dave, that, you know, it's sort of this standoff where uh, maybe we have less war now because, uh, you know, sort of the nuclear options that a lot of countries have. I think think there is some truth to that. Uh, I think that it's, you know, it's uh, – there's more caution. There's a more cautious approach when – uh, moving towards war. Um, and, and so I do think in some ways it has saved some lives. And then again, you know, we also have the conversations where, you know, if, you know the nuclear pro- proliferation, uh, you know, talks with you know, North Korea, uh, Iran. And, and so obviously there's that aspect of it, that if you have someone who's willing to pull the trigger, um, you could cause just, you know, mass, uh, uh, chaos and casualties. So, to me, it's sort of like, yeah, it probably prevents uh, some, but then I guess at some point we're moving towards that one guy, right? That one crazy uh, who, if if willing, um, can can cause a lot of damage real quick. Yeah, and and I agree with that. I mean, we've got that's why it's so important for the countries I believe that have uh, weapons now uh, that they protect against rogue nations from getting uh, nuclear uh, capabilities. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I guess uh, I would say it's a little, I think there's more in, arguments more in favor of keeping war from happening versus uh, bringing more uh, to happening, you know, as far as that goes. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we haven't used it ever since Japan. And at one time we were the only person that had the, uh, the capabilities, and we didn't use it on anybody. So a lot to be said about that. All right, let's take a a break from history now and move up into today and some of the topics I'd like to cover with you guys today. Uh, I guess uh, one of the big stories I wanted to ask you about, and I think we can cover it here real quickly uh, with you, JR, before we get to uh, our break, and that is uh, I got a... uh, uh, a Democrat Party uh, hit yesterday, or not yesterday, a couple of days ago, 
from uh, the campaign for State Senator uh, Elliott, who's running against uh, French Hill out in District 2, talking about how much money she raised and how little bit of money he raised. But if I remember correctly, the Gilmore Group had a uh, put out something uh, before they said that, which tells me you guys knew they were going to put that out as some kind of big story, uh, that the 220 dollars that uh, Hill had raised versus the $600,000 Elliott had raised was apples and oranges when you looked at what was going on during the time the money was raised. Do you want to jump on this and yeah, like, you know, talk about well, it? Sure. I think first and foremost, you know, everyone who pays attention knows that Arkansas second district is always uh, a fight. Um, and, and it's been Republican for uh, a decade. Um, and, and so Democrats are always going to do whatever they can to try to get it back. They think it's in play. Um, and so that's first and foremost. Uh, secondarily, you know, the second quarter started basically right in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, and so for nearly two months, Congressman Hill uh, had pushed the pause button on fundraising. Uh, he was busy uh, trying to, uh, you know, come up with some solutions to help people back here uh, in central Arkansas. Uh, including, you know, shepherding about $6 billion in relief efforts to Arkansas families and small businesses. Right. Um, and so that was his focus. And so and I think it was an appropriate focus at the time. Uh, on the other hand, State Senator uh, Joyce Elliott, uh, you know, she she spent every waking moment, uh, you know, tapping those uh, liberal pockets across the country uh, for campaign dollars. She did it on Palm Sunday. Um, and, uh, you know, and so it, it, for her, it's just all about uh, accepting as, as many contributions as possible from whoever it might be, including, um, which just she's on record, and this has been written about a lot, but she, she took you know, $11,000 from Rusty Cranford, mm-hmm. uh, the former lobbyist, now convicted felon. Uh, and I think it was a period about 2010 to 2016, but $11,000. And to put that in perspective, Dave, she is, uh, of all of the currently elected officials uh, in Arkansas, she is the top elected official um, that has taken the most money uh, from the Rusty Cranford, uh, you know, pot there. So and I think there's some questions uh, about that. But again, um, this is, you know, what we've come to expect with, uh, Democrats, and I think you also have to look at the bottom line here. She has about seven hundred thousand dollars cash on hand. French Hill has one point four six million cash on hand, so there's a sizable uh, advantage there for the Hill campaign. So, again, I think put it in perspective, it was a two month pause, um, and he was still able to raise two hundred seventy thousand uh, dollars. I think you'll see that pick up in the next quarter, um, and I also think you'll see, uh, you know, uh, a very appreciative electorate send French Hill back to Washington in November because they want someone who's actually going to work for them um, and not uh, uh, spend most of their time just, you know, trying to fill up their campaign chests. Yeah, we won't belabor the point uh, today. We're still quite a ways out from the election, but I would like to get in and and talk later about these two campaigns where you've got, you know, uh, Congressman Hill to talk about the things that have been done here in the uh, uh, second district uh, that he has helped shepherd in and 
uh, his party has helped make happen. And the party that uh, the state senator is part of, maybe not so much state party, but, you know, now she's attached herself to the national party. And is that the type of a party that Arkansans can identify with? And I think that that is a resounding no, uh, no to be honest with you. No, look, look who she's been, you know, endorsed by so far. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, if Joyce Elliott is is elected to Congress, she will be part of the squad. Um, and and that's I mean, her liberal ideology is a scary, uh, uh, you know, a scary um, possibility for AR two. And so I think it's important for voters to understand that. Um, mm-hmm. and look, I also think we're, we're hey, we fellas, we got it. We got to take a break. All right. Um, we're going to we're going to get yeah. a break here. They're letting us know that we've, we've got to take a break. So we'll do that. We'll come back, talk a little bit more about this. Seth, you can join in the conversation as sure. well. Six twenty two in the morning on the Dave Ellswick show. Got to pay bills. Let's do that. Traffic and weather on the Dave Ellswick show. All right. So uh, big news happened overnight, and that is Brad Pascal has been replaced as the campaign manager for the uh, Trump uh, campaign. Uh, he's replacing him with veteran GOP operative. Is it Bill St- Stepen? Is that the way you pronounce Stipen. his name? Mm-hmm. Stepen, okay. As more and more polls are showing Joe Biden opening up a significant early lead in the race for the White House. And let me uh, quote a word there very, very strongly. Early. It is still very early early in the race for the White House. Uh, The move announced last night came days after an article in the Washington Post portrayed Pascal as self-promoting and aloof, noting that he featured prominently in an early Trump campaign ad and that staffers were complaining he often took calls by his swimming pool at his house. Uh, So was it too much for Brad Pascal? I mean, he was kind of uh, looked at as the wonder boy by the media, kind of the uh, Carl Rove, if we want to use uh, mm-hmm. that analogy. And uh, we all know that Carl Rove doesn't carry the power that he once had, and now Brad Pascal doesn't either. Does this surprise? Well, we've got about a minute and a half here. Uh, we'll, we'll pick this up again when we come back. But uh, real fast, Seth, uh, does this surprise you at all? Not entirely, Dave. Brad, for people that don't know, led the data operations for the president's campaign in 2016. So he was the guy nobody really knew about until the day after the election where they said, how did the Trump campaign know to zero in on Michigan? How did they know to zero in on Pennsylvania and Wisconsin? And the answer was largely the team that Jared Kushner and Brad Parscale had formed on data. The president had three different campaign managers in 2016, ultimately falling in the final stretch to Kellyanne Conway. And, of course, that campaign was victorious. So the one thing I would note was Brad Parscale was not fired. He was just repurposed to a senior advisor position. Mm -hmm. In most of these cases where you switch up a campaign manager, that person is left to go, you know, quote, spend more time with their family or something to that effect. So Brad is still on the campaign team, uh, still working in data, which is his sweet spot. It certainly was in 2016. And then, as you noted, Bill Stipen, who ran Chris Christie, a Republican in New Jersey, he ran both of his 
successful gubernatorial runs. So he knows something about a close race. And as you said, there's there's a lot of road to go left in the 2020 election. All right. Let's talk about it some more when we come back. That's what you got to look forward to after we get back from the news here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Seth Mays is with me, and, uh, of course, J.R. Davis is with me. We'll continue our discussion after the news. All right, back. Uh, J.R. Davis from the Gilmore Group is with us, and Seth Mays is with the Arkansas GOP, is with us this morning on the Dave Ellswick Show. And, guys, uh, we were talking about uh, Pascal being replaced as uh, the uh, campaign manager of the Trump campaign. Seth uh, to, to kind of uh, paraphrase what he said, no surprises here that they, they, um, you know, the president has made a change uh, and put him back into the position that he was uh, best suited for, as far as my, you know, thoughts are. I mean, the guy's a computer guru, to be honest with you, and I've talked to him before, and it amazes me the the, the amount of information he can bring up in a heartbeat to you. Uh, and so he goes into that position now. And uh, we've got a new uh, campaign uh, manager. Uh, what's this say to you, uh, Jr. Anything important that we should take out of this? No, I mean, I think Seth made a really good point in, you know, 2016. Like right now you've got the national media, you know, saying there's a big shakeup, Trump, you know, uh, you know, Trump sees the writing on the wall. There's something going on. They've got to make some changes. But then in 2016, yeah, I, I'd actually kind of forgotten the the uh, you know rotating door of, of uh, campaign managers in that yeah. 2016 campaign. So, hey, look, I think that if you if you look back at uh, elections past, I mean, you know, four months is a long time uh, in an election. Uh, three or four months, uh, a lot of things can change. We haven't even gotten to the conventions yet. It, it's it's never, you know, I think what would worry me more if I was part of sort of that Trump circle uh, is if nothing was done. You know, and I think that there's been some issues that maybe they don't feel like they're moving the needle. They're spending some money. It's not necessarily moving things. Um, so I think it's okay to, to switch things up and say, hey, we're going to do something different. We're going to try this instead. Um, and I think the important part is that he's still part of the team, uh, and you're still going to have uh, that uh, data analysis side, which was so crucial in 2016 um, with the campaign still. So, look, you bring in some more expertise uh, and some experience, and you still keep Brad there uh, doing what he does. So, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a good move, and we'll see, um, you know, how that transitions into the fall. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's no telling what it's going to do uh, for an, at least a month or so because it's going to take that long for the new guy to start impressing his character upon upon the campaign. So let me ask both of you this. How important now uh, are analytics, because they were extremely important during the Obama campaigns, they were extremely important uh, for uh the uh, the president's campaign in 2016 are they as important now uh, going into 2020 as they were in 2016 and 2012 and all the way back to tw- uh, 2008? 
Yeah, no, Dave, I, I would say that the analytics are is ever important, and it will be very interesting. We've talked about just how different a campaign 2020 will be by the time it's in the history books. And it's in a time like this where we're in a global pandemic, where we had some time ago a lot of civil unrest, where there's a lot of just unknowns uh, going on in the world. You have to fall back on the data, which will show you who is going to vote and who is not, right? You can see which voter has come out and voted every single election. Great. Well, then that person is probably not going to be turned off by any of the things going. And uh, I know a lot of election forecasters, for instance, uh, Chris Sauerwalt, the online uh, politics editor for Fox News, is projected that voter turnout this year will be higher than 2016 and higher than 2012. So that people are very engaged. So, no, I, I think the analytics are ever more important because that's what you have to go off of. You can't just rely calling people's landlines and and seeing where they are. You have to look at their history. You've got to look at those data points under the scene uh, and see where they're driving people. And so I, I think especially in 2020, where a lot of candidates may be wary of conventional means like door knocking, uh, maybe it's better to send a mail piece, not saying that you couldn't door knock. Uh, but some people will make that decision, and it's data that will drive those decisions. What about you, Jr.? I mean, you work with the Gilmore Group. This is uh, your all's wheelhouse. How do you feel about analytics? Yeah, I think, again, Seth, you know, hit the nail on the head. I mean, analytics is a huge part, uh, especially nowadays, is you know, how you run a campaign. And I will say, too, when you're running some of these smaller races uh, where it's available, um, it helps you, uh, you know, kind of realize where you need to spend that money because some canvas don't have a lot of that, um, you know. And so I think it's it's certainly king, uh, it, and it's certainly something you absolutely have to, you know, pay attention to, um, and and especially this year. And I think here's the issue. Uh, to me, the issue is the unknown, and that's what will pretty much freak out any. Uh, campaign uh, or incumbent is is that unknown and and do I think that you know our candidates are going to be fine in November? I do, um, but I also think this is just really an unprecedented time in our modern history where I do think you're going to have a lot of people um, request you know those mail-in ballots, those absentee ballots. Um, they can do that you know uh, in mid-September when those are ready and turn them right back in. Uh, and so then, you know, you have to start thinking, okay, when do you send out your mail? Do you do it earlier now? Because that option is there. You have to monitor how many requests uh, that, you know, the county clerk is getting or the secretary of state is getting for that particular district. And so, um, I, I, you know, and I think a logistical nightmare in some ways as well. If it's a large part uh, of the Arkansas electorate that um, requests mail-in ballot. Which I think before Seth, I think it's like past elections, maybe two to three percent uh, versus yeah, you know yeah. some numbers are are now looking at fourteen percent, and I think you're going to wow. see that increase as we get closer to November. And so um, we want to be, uh, you know, we want to be cognizant of that fact, uh, and we want to be able to um, monitor uh, the those numbers so we know okay, this is how we need to adjust. Uh, our plan, but the logistics is just going to be a nightmare. I and mean, we're talking about, you know, 
I guess, you know, if, if COVID's not that bad in November, then I guess have a victory party. But just know that victory party may not end for a week or so uh, because you're going to have to count these sure. absentee ballots and you're going to have to figure out what's legit, what's not legit. There's probably going to be litigation. And so, you know, I say all that to say, yeah, uh, analytics, uh, King, you have to have it. It helps you, um, you know, in your strategy, your overall strategy and, and targeting methods. But this is going to be a very, very strange election year. Um, and I think it will affect everyone from, you know, Donald Trump to dog catcher. And, and so how it will affect them, we're not really sure. Um, but it's certainly going to be different. All right. So let me ask you both about this. And I suppose I need to get the Secretary of State uh, on uh, John Thurston to talk about this. But if there is, let's say that there's a 12 percent uptick in uh, absentee ballots, are those counted by hand, or are they electronically counted? I believe, Dave, it's going to vary county by county. Of course, nothing is counted before Election Day. Somebody made the point at a news conference that Secretary Thurston was at, you know, couldn't we technically just count all of these as they come in, which might sound very quaint, and, hey, what a nice idea, let's get ahead of the curb. But just think about officials all over the state quote unquote <laughs> counting the ballots weeks before the election and who's keeping up with that tally and where are these ballots going and and who's you know monitoring that number constantly so you want to do it within the window closest to the official election date but th- this election is going to look entirely different the secretary of state also talked about when you if you go to in-person voting that the secretary of state's office has put money into acquiring a bunch of little plastic stylus pens like you might use for a tablet. Right. When you go in to vote, you won't actually, you know, a lot of us are now used to pressing our finger on the screen and Uh and having it select our ballot that way. Well, this time you'll have a little plastic pen that will tap on the screen for you, and then you take that stylus with you. That isn't going to be rewashed or reassigned to anybody else. You'll get that little piece of plastic and, and to take that with you. And so it, the whole election is going to look uh, differently. And I know the SOS, like I said, they've already invested in the styluses, and so they're looking at, at what do we need to do to be prepared uh, to answer people's questions, and that includes – Uh, more monies into absentee voting to make sure that we can count these ballots in an appropriate fashion. But ultimately, Dave, if it's a nail-biter race on Election Day, we're not going to have that answer with absentee ballots. But we certainly don't want to start, as somebody suggested, counting these ballots a week ahead of the election. Yeah, so the bottom line is this. On election night, you better hope if you're the candidate that's leading, uh, you're leading by more than... uh, the prescribed number that you need to overcome mm-hmm. the uh, the ballots that are there from the mail. Yep. Yeah. So you and, and I'll yeah go ahead. Yeah, that way you can go to bed and get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly, and and that's why I just think that you know, um, I mean the the I think what people need to understand too is that the absentee ballot option has always been there. Um, if you work and you can't work, I mean, you, you work and you can't get to the polls, you can request an absentee ballot. You can live in the heart of Little Rock and request an absentee ballot. This has always been around. Um, I think more so now people are just sort of learning about that, you know, and understanding that you can request it. Um, I think you're going to have more Republicans show up on Election Day 
than Democrats by far. I think more Republicans, and we've seen it, you know, aren't uh, as concerned with COVID-19 as maybe, you know, uh, the Democrats. And that's just, I mean, that's just kind of in the nature of this. So I do think you're going to have more Republicans show up on Election Day to vote. Uh, I think you will probably have more Democrats utilize the mail-in ballot. Um, and, and but but the tricky part of the mail-in ballot too, and, and second, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can actually request a mail-in ballot and have someone else pick it up for you. Um, right. And right. and so there's there's that's to me that's the logistical nightmare here. Uh, is you know what exactly? I mean, what are, what what is it going to look like? Um, you know, we mm-hmm. saw the disaster in Georgia uh, yeah. for their primary, um, and. You know, and so we just don't know. And so uh, it's going to be something that, you know, uh, we just have to stay on top of. And and I don't know right now exactly, you know, what in the world we can expect it to look like, uh, you know, leading up to and after November 3rd. All right, let's take a break. Final break for this hour. Seth Mays is with us, Arkansas GOP. J.R. Davis, Gilmore Group, with me, Dave Ellswick, here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, I want to move uh, forward here for this final segment. We've got about eight minutes to talk. And uh, with J.R. Davis from the Morgan Group and uh, Seth May from the Arkansas GOP. And last night I got a... Uh, a text message from the chairman of the Republican Party here in Arkansas, of course, that's Doyle Webb, saying that we're definitely going to Jacksonville for the national campaign for the uh, Republican National Convention. And uh, he doesn't know whether it's inside or outside. I don't think anybody's going to know that for a few more weeks. But evidently, Jacksonville is definitely the bullseye now. Seth, you probably know more about this than anybody who's sitting here on this panel this morning. Uh, have the have the rooms come through yet? Do we know where we're going to be staying or the delegates going to be staying? Well, we're going to be staying in Jacksonville. <laughs> that's, oh, okay. that's as much as I can say right now. So those, I like that answer. On, on, on housing are being finalized, but... It's quite clear the RNC is having an in-person convention in Jacksonville. Now, exactly all the finer details will depend on where we are with the virus over the next month. But a convention in person in Jacksonville is guaranteed. All right. With that in mind, let me ask you both, uh, and let's make our answer short for this. Uh, what does what's going to be the difference if the Republicans have an in-person convention and the Democrats decide to do a virtual convention? Who does that help and who does that hurt? I can tackle that one first. I would say traditionally, you see everybody get a bump after a convention. I think that bump is seeing somebody stand before a crowd and look presidential. I don't know how videotaped, pre-recorded remarks, which is what Joe Biden will probably do, encourage any enthusiasm. So I, I think the advantage for a bump has to be to the folks who are in person as it looks traditionally. Okay. What about you, Jr.? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, – I don't necessarily think it's going to be the, um, you know, uh, conventions themselves taking place, I think it's what's going to happen is the aftermath. And so if you, if, if the Republicans can pull something off in Jacksonville, you, know, you, you don't see a lot of spread from that. 
But I just think the news stories after a public convention could be really bad. Maybe really good bump. I think there's a lot more excitement when there are people there as opposed to a virtual convention. Uh, I also think uh, a virtual convention affects uh, the way a speech, the tone of a speech, you know, the, without the applause lines, without sort of that excitement that surrounds, you know, uh, the candidate uh, uh, and uh, the, the crowd when they're there and they're giving this big rah-rah speech. I think you're going to lose a lot of that with the Democrats. Um, and, and so we'll see. But I think it's going to be what happens after the fact uh, and what kind of news stories come out of those conventions. In my, All right. In my, uh, opinion. Yeah. All right. This weekend, the uh, state GOP is having their state convention. Now, we're having an in-person convention. It's going to be down at the Benton Events Center. And I will be broadcasting from 11 in the morning until noon at it because uh, it's not going to last as long as uh, historically the conventions have lasted. But, Seth, mm-hmm. why, don't you, why don't you bring us up to date first about what are the different changes that we're going to see in the state convention this year? Sure. So one change that will be apparent to everybody attending is, of course, the six-foot distancing. So chairs will be spaced six feet apart. And we've had some experience with this. We held, of course, you noted our convention is this weekend. But last month, we held a state committee meeting to elect delegates to that national convention. And so we have done at the Republican Party of Arkansas a large-scale in-person event under all of these uh, guidelines that we have, and I, I thought, and we had excellent feedback, including the governor, who tweeted how great it was run, all things considered. So attendees will notice there will be some some spacing. If you're in a couple and you've registered, of course, everybody has to register ahead of time, so we have a list of all the attendees. If you're a couple, you can be seated beside each other, sort of as if you're in church, and, you, and that way you're considered a group, and that gets a few more people into the room that way as well. So there will be some, some obvious uh, distancing that will be noticeable. Uh, but at the same time, for most people, this will be the largest crowd that they've been to in a while. And so what we do at the state convention is ratify our platform in any resolutions and then certify our nominees. Now, two years ago, we heard from the governor and attorney general and lieutenant governor and everybody who was nominated as a constitutional office. This time, of course, they're not on the ballot, so we will just be ratifying, not just be, we will excitedly ratify <laughs> and, and approve our nominees for state house and state senate. Uh, and that's all across the state. And then go ahead and do those platform and resolution issues uh, like I had talked about. So we're hoping to get people in, have a very productive, packed meeting, and then get people out uh, in time for lunch. Yeah, with that all all said, so uh, how many people are we expecting at any one time? And then uh, are there any resolutions out there that uh, are going to come up that, could cause uh, angst for uh, the people that are present? Sure. I'm not sure that it's angst. To answer your first question on attendees, we're going to be somewhere around 220. I don't have the exact number, but for perspective, last month at our state committee meeting in Hot Springs, we were around 170, 180. So around about what we've dealt with before, and we even have a larger venue, which is nicer. For issues... There is one called the Age of Majority. It's a resolution, so it won't be in the platform. And that's a very libertarian uh, thought that if 
you can go to war at 18. Uh, you ought to be able to drink, smoke, smoke anything else at 18. That if we consider somebody a legal adult at 18, they ought to be entitled to everything an adult can do. And I okay. don't know that that will cause angst. I just don't have any inkling as to which way the convention will go on that issue. All right. Will will people present it, and will you are here pro and con, or is that going to be just any kind of statements from the floor? Yep. Every, all of the resolutions will be presented. We may try and vote at them all at once, but the convention can say, hey, we're comfortable with these resolutions. Let's pull this one out, and let's debate that and discuss that, and that will happen. All right. Like I said, I'll be there starting uh, on the air live at 11. I will arrive uh, sometime around 9 o'clock to get all set up. So I'll be there for the entire convention. Guys, we're out of time. It went quick today. Very quick. I look forward to talking to you again next Thursday. Seth Mays, Arkansas GOP, and, of course, J.R. Davis, who's been with me for many years now here on Thursdays on the Dave Ellswick Show and the Gilmore Group. We'll be back, and uh, we'll be talking with more guests here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Thank you, guys. into the 7 o'clock hour here on the Dave Ellswick Show on a Thursday. And I always look forward to these half hours that we have with the folks from Harding University. They have really, in all honesty, have kicked their graduate program into high gear. Uh, they are here in, uh, in Arkansas, just not known just in Arkansas anymore. They are known all over the United States and, in fact, all over the world. Harding University is uh, many times an under-discussed uh, jewel of academia here in Arkansas. And joining us during this half hour today is Dr. Reet Kronk. Uh, she's the Director of Graduate Information System Studies, Graduate School of Business at Harding. <laughs> Doctor, let's get started here and, and, and let's talk about uh, health analytics and a health analytics degree. It's funny that we're going to talk about that because just last hour we were talking about how much analytics plays in politics now. Uh, we have seen how analytics plays in the COVID-19 coverage that we've been seeing over the last months. And last but not least, uh, I played baseball through college, and analytics now plays a huge part in baseball. So with with all of that in mind, it just makes sense to me that you need to have a degree in health analytics. Can you talk a little bit about that and and, and what it entails? Sure. The um, it's a master's program in health analytics, and 
It's designed to equip students uh, to work with these complex data sets and sources, things like cure rates and drug treatment and insurance and various patient outcomes, scheduling, all of those sorts of things to solve problems within the healthcare context. And we know we have plenty of those. Yeah, and with all with that said, it's important to understand some people, somebody's got to be smart enough uh, to to set this all up, and that's where this uh, this whole health analytics degree comes from. You got to have the people who can set it up, and then you got to have the people who can discuss it and explain it. Correct. Correct. Definitely. Um, we have. Um, um, I guess there's a bit of a, a continuum. Very highly technical people called data scientists. Uh, they are more the ones involved in uh, setting up the, the infrastructure for all of this. And then we have the data analysts who can be anyone in any manager, anybody within the context, the healthcare context in this one. And they can use some tools to create visualizations, to run all sorts of comparisons, look for patterns in the data, um, asking a whole range of questions of the data, and they know how to do that and how to ask the right questions. And then if they get a wrong answer or a different answer, then they know where to go next. Okay, so uh, the person who's looking to get into this, uh, should they have some kind of background with their, uh, you know, bachelor's or or whatever to to lead them into this, or can you go into this kind of cold from any other particular field? You can come in from any field, uh, but we do require a bachelor's. Okay, because it's a, a master's level program. Okay, so you could, but, I could, you could, I could come in as a bachelor with a bachelor's in uh, in radio and television. That doesn't bother you. You don't, you know think like most people think oh a journalist and <laughs> and say yeah you, you're going to look at that and say that's okay you did the work come on do the work for this yes that's exactly that's okay uh, we take people into the program and we step them through courses that and if if you get uh, an area that you're struggling with a bit we can give you some tutorials to go through um, websites to look at just to bring yourself up to speed if you are struggling but for the most part um, it's designed for people who don't have any prior knowledge of this field all right so why is this field important I mean, uh, people are wanting to look at the analytics. They want to see the breakdowns and things of that nature. What comes out of that that people should know about? Okay. Well, like with um, any organization, they say data is the new oil, and we want to be able to maximize the value of that data. So within the healthcare context, we would be looking at things like um, predicting characteristics of patients, patient, which ones are likely to miss their appointments, um, which ones are likely to develop a particular disease. We look at outcomes of um, surgeries, who was in the surgery, all the different types of techniques and all the different variables. We might look at supply chain and how to make that more efficient to get the in the, like in the recent case, the PPE to the right people at the right time, get, get moving resources around logistics type information, um, uh, speeding up insurance claims, um, a lot of operational efficiency things as well as research and patient outcome 
um, findings. So um, it's got a huge range of applications within in, within healthcare. So for the person who is in healthcare, I would assume, and that's a big word that we all know about, but I assume that uh, mm-hmm. they they have. Uh, a little bit more empathy or humi- uh, humanity about them when they're looking at the patient. Is there a problem? And, and you know, you're a doctor who deals with this stuff and, and, and looking at this graduate program. How do you keep the humanity in a program that's analytically uh, based? That's a good question. Um, most of the time, we would say the data speaks for itself. But I think uh, keeping the humanity in it is um, try to think before you speak. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's something we all struggle with. But uh, to try and think of the implications of what you're about to say. Um, if you have a model and it's predicting something or whatever, you need to be able to discern when you should share that information and when you shouldn't. And you know, like in the case we've we've just seen, um, what kind of response? Um, be be mindful of of what that that information might do. Um, so that's that's one of the ways we can keep the humanity in it, um, and and always examine yourself and your own critical thinking processes to make sure that you're not bringing your own bias into the picture. And that's something we always have to watch for as well. So there, there is a lot of humanity in it. And there's actually a little, quite a bit of art in it as well in, in working out uh, the best way to show uh, particular relationships and in a complete and honest way. Yeah, it would seem to me sometimes if, you're, if your whole sphere is uh, revolving around analytics, and was, for some people well, that's true, that numbers are just numbers you've got to attach faces to those numbers correct correct definitely and i think it's those faces that drive your should drive most people who are in analytics you Mm. you basically find yourself solve problems so people can have a have a better outcome in terms of their health um both individually and and for the community um and across the world so that's that's your driver. You, know, you care about the, those kinds of outcomes. Yeah, maybe, doctor, you need to put in your your program. I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but just uh, mm-hmm. take those folks and make them spend, uh, you know, a day a week walking a, a, along the floors of a hospital and and talking to the patients. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't. I you know. I don't know. I I just thinking that that was. It's difficult. It, you know. You're talking in some cases life and death. And I do know healthcare is allocating resources and making sure you're using those resources the best that you can. But you got to make sure you're using those resources as humanely as you can as well. And I do not relish your job. <laughs> Thank you. Well. Um Hopefully these students will be equipped to do a good job of at least providing decision makers with the correct information. That's good. All right, we got to get a break in. It's 16 after 7. Let's take a break, and when we come back, why Harding? I mean, why Harding for this uh, particular 
uh, program. I'll let you sit and crow about your program when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. 16 minutes after 7 on a Thursday, our guest, Dr. Reet Kronk, Director of Graduate Information System Studies, Graduate School of Business, Harding University. We're talking about an MS in Health Analytics, a Health Analytics degree. You know, they say data is the new oil. So we'll talk about that when we come back as well here on the Dave Ellswick Show. I need to remind you about PI Roofing. PI Roofing can take good care of your roof. I've been telling you this for years. Uh, PI Roofing has been with me for 14, 15 years here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And I don't change my message very often with them unless they're looking for people that they need to work at PI Roofing. And that is they pride themselves on their customer service and making sure they get the job done and get it done right. Uh, Joel has uh, the owner of the uh, business, along with his wife, Veronica, has different ways of looking at the roofing industry, and uh, they're much stronger uh, professional views than a lot of roofing companies have. I mean, you can, you know, after a storm or whatever, pick up a roofing company that comes in from Oklahoma or Tennessee or Texas or Mississippi and uh, they'll undercut somebody by a thousand dollars or something to do a roofing job but the bottom line is are you getting the job that you want done for your roof because your roof is the final protection against the elements for everything all that stuff that you have inside your house how important is that to you how important are those family pictures that if they got, you know, doused with water uh, would be ruined and you lose all those memories? How important is that to you? If it's important to you, then I'm telling you, you'll call PI Roofing and talk to them and let them come and do the job that they do best. And uh, right now they're, they know we're in unprecedented times. Uh, they change the way that they we deal with a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that they have, uh, you know, changed is social distancing. They make sure the social distancing is uh, kept in uh, uh, in force. Uh, you can do all of the different questions that you need and uh, answers that you get over the phone or on uh, their internet site. Call seven zero seven thirty five fifty one. At 707-3551, number I called when I used them for my house, or just visit them online, piroofing.com. P.I. Roofing, your roof leak detectives, I highly recommend them. We continue here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We're talking with Dr. Uh, Reet uh, Kronk from Harding University. She's the Director of Graduate Information System Studies, Graduate School of Business at Harding University. Uh, to learn more about this, by the way, and apply online, harding.edu slash health analytics. Again, let me give you that again, harding.edu slash health analytics. And uh, uh, after you hear the rest of this interview, I think that you who are interested in that are going to are going to get a hold of the folks there at Harding and look forward to get in and into this. Let me just say I was talking during the break uh, to the doctor and she's from Australia. If uh, you're wondering, you said, man, she don't have a 
she don't talk like Arkansans. Uh, she <laughs> she has, still has her Australian accent, which I love, by the way. But I was explaining to her while I was stationed on Guam in the Air Force that I got to know a lot of Australian guys and gals from uh, the RAF. Uh, that's the Royal Air Force uh, in Australia. And they are the people who uh, introduced me uh, to uh, Foster's Beer which I always thought was interesting, Doc, because uh, I, w- I still remember oil cans, all right? I know uh, I say oil can, mm-hmm. people, a lot of people don't even know what I'm talking about. But Foster's <laughs> beer didn't come in a regular 12-ounce can. It came in a, like what looked like an oil can. And uh, mm-hmm. I'll never forget the first time they handed me one of them, and I went, what is this? And they go, it's a beer, mate. <laughs> and it, it was funny. I mean, it, 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 well, you know what I'm talking about. They're big. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, 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 do you miss Australia? Oh, yes, I do. I do. I've been going home every summer pretty much for the last 20 years. Wow. Except I can't, I can't this summer because yeah. it's all closed. Yeah, that's a long flight. Mm-hmm. That's a long ride. You get up and get up and walk around a lot, don't you? Yes, you do. And you and you better do that. I mean, for you know, embolisms are not a a good thing to have, to say the least, and Mm -hmm. that'll help you keep that Mm -hmm. from happening. Let's talk about why Harding. Why Harding when you come to this program? Um, Good question. There are a few other programs similar to it. Um, I think there's two others perhaps within Arkansas, Um, and I'm sure they are are very good also. Uh, We have at Harding, though, we we have a culture of care to support students. Um, Being smaller, um, everybody is is treated on a one-on-one basis. Uh, You get to talk to your professors, text them, call them, whatever, um, most of the pro- uh, the courses in the program are taught by faculty, full-time faculty, <clears throat> that you can get with any time you need. Um, so Harding is, and Harding is a quality brand. Uh, it's been, um, the, the Graduate School of Business has, has, has received accolades from ver- various uh, surveys. Um, it's just a, a good quality brand. But it's really the quality of care, that culture of care that, um, that drew my husband and I to Harding. Um, and that's a long way uh, to come to be part of something that we think is is going to make a difference and is making a difference for the better. Uh, so um, that's one of the reasons why Harding and this particular program, I did look or we did look at um, a number of other programs. This is a, a collaboration between the Allied Health Um, school as well as uh, the College of Business and we put our heads together and looked at what we could do to um, put the most important topics and subjects within this course without too many extras and we we decided that what you needed to start with was really an understanding of the data like where is it coming from where is it, all of this data? I mean, we are swimming in data. So an understanding of where a lot of it comes from then 
how it makes its journey into the databases and so we and the whole processes that surround that the the um even down to the technology of a, a radiologist would would deal with so we do a survey of all um the clinical systems yeah, and then a- we turn into processing that data yeah that's the important part you know there's a lot of data out out there but what's the data that you really need and how do you use the data that you really need? Folks that want to get involved in this, uh, how long does it take to get your degree? And uh, then it's offered fully online, correct? Correct. We have two choices. Um, the one that, that we're advertising at the moment is uh, one year online, full time. Mm. Wow. So. If you have if you have twelve months, if you you know want to change career, um, you've been laid off or whatever, um, or you just just want to change, you, one year and you're done. So that's that's uh, not too long. Most people can last a year. All right. And, uh, and that just opens so many doors for you. Uh, so if you start in the fall, which is in mid-August, um, you could study full-time and be done within a year. Right, we bottom, also have the option. Oh, go ahead. Quickly, I've got about 20 seconds. Okay. No, you go ahead. All right. This so is for the, one year again, this <laughs> is a Master of Science in Healthcare Data Analytics. Uh, go to harding.edu slash health analytics to get more information dr reek cronk thank you so much for your time rush is up next here on the dave ellswick show all right let's get back into the dave ellswick show my one of my favorite guests and uh, a good friend of mine who's joining us today dr tim Lim. and uh doc where are you right now are you in arkansas or are you in texas i am in texas at the moment Okay, so you're you're in the real pressure cooker. I mean, that place is hot down there. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is, but we don't have the humidity, so it's actually not that bad. Uh, well, famous last words. I already, I always say, it doesn't matter how you cook, whether you cook dry or you cook moist, <laughs> it's still hot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Except it's like, um, do you want the death by lava flow or death by sauna? <laughs> that is. <laughs> That, that down you make a point you you make you make a point all right for folks that are not familiar with tim uh he's an audiologist by trade by avocation he works with comics and he's been doing it for years the man is uh, very talented he's a great artist uh he uh has several uh, comics of his own, and he and Mark Pellegrini do things together. Uh, he's a great guest to have on to give you uh, information about the cancel culture because he's been dealing with it for years because he'll tell you uh, you see all these Marvel movies, and for the most part uh, they, they back up great uh, things about America, but you can watch some of the cracks in the storylines and see them uh, you know, make, um, I don't know, make points that are, uh, you know, out there for transsexuals and all kinds of stuff, kind of weird. But uh, when you think of uh, Stan Lee, you think about a typical American guy, typically. But uh, when you think of Marvel now, it, it's really a bastion of progressivism and uh, and leftists and uh, people like Tim 
who has worked with Marvel, people like uh, uh, other folks here in Arkansas. We've got a hotbed of of comic uh, artists and things of that nature uh, have quit working with Marvel and DC because of the political leanings. And uh, has that changed any at all, Tim? I'm thinking with what I've been seeing uh, happening in our country, it's probably intensifying more so on the lefties' parts. Yeah, it's actually gotten worse. And that, that I think, is actually trumped up to the fact that we're in an election season. So one thing that I could have not foreseen, and I, I, it's, it's one of the main things I've gotten wrong in the last four years, is that with the Trump economy in full swing and things generally being very good for Americans, mm-hmm. I thought that in this election season that the left would lose its flavor, um, simply because if you remember in the early days of the Trump administration, that was when we were having the Antifa um, not riots, but you would have Antifa going around and stuff. But around 2017, it kind of died out um, in late 2017, early 2018. So I was thinking to myself, well, this is a downward trajectory as far as the left is concerned. But my friends were telling me, like, no, we're pretty sure that in 2020 it's going to ramp back up because a lot of what has happened is the hostility doesn't go away. It just festers. What do you do in that downtime when things are going good and you're ramping up to an election year, it just comes to the surface. And so what we've seen recently is we have seen a recent of um, a recent resurgence in Me Too movements in the comic book community. Most recently, uh, Warren Ellis, Cameron Stewart, some of these uh, Marvel, DC, and independents, uh, they've been Me too some successful, some unsuccessful. But even more recently and pertinent to us, You've had Doug Tenapel on your show. He's the creator of Earthworm Jim. Right. And re- recently, one of his cover artists, Sean Gordon Murphy, he was pressured by the left to uh, disavow him and not do the, the cover, which he had already done, to take it away. And he, he caved in. And he said, I, I support uh, trans rights, LGBTQ, barbecue, FYZ, CIA. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he caved in completely, and I mean, I think they're still they're still good friends, and I and you know Doug, he doesn't wish any hostility upon this guy, but it was very telling that you have his cover artist, who's an industry leader for um, DC, he works on the, on a Batman independent title, and he totally caved in, and he just said, "Uh, no, I'm distancing myself from it." But luckily, guys like Doug don't cave because I mean. Um, he he kind of knows where he stands, and he knows that there's no real pressure that they can put on him, per se, to, to make him waver. Uh, I just feel sorry for a lot of these guys who rely on the arts as a profession, because you are, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. You have nowhere to go. Yeah, well, let's, let's use this as a general uh, explanation for that. Uh, it came out... Uh, uh, early yesterday that Walmart was going to require everybody to wear a mask, workers and uh, customers starting July 20th. And I thought, okay, well, if they're going to do that, I'll just go to Kroger. Well, late last night, Kroger, Sam's, and uh, just about every other grocery chain around all said they were going to wear, uh, require everybody to wear a mask. Well, you got to shop somewhere, so I guess you're going to wear a mask. It seems like uh, for some of these people who want to work in this industry, uh, 
they're going to have to walk very carefully. Yeah, and um, there's a lot of very there's. I don't even want to say it's a controversy because the uh, you know my wife and I, we both uh, work in separate fields of um, medicine. Right. She worked very. She worked in surgery, and I work with audiology, and so we have kind of, we have our ear to the ground as far as things that are happening in hospitals and clinics and stuff. And uh, for your listeners out there, I mean, I think that they're very well informed. But for people who might not be paying attention to this stuff, here's the thing. The CDC has changed its position several times on the efficacy of masks. And even to this day, when we're talking, I'm just like, all right, uh, here we are. It's been two days since we've had this conversation. Do masks prevent you from giving the illness to other people? Or are you protecting yourself from other people um, giving it to you? And no one can agree on anything. And, I, and in my opinion, when you're looking at risk versus reward, the, the requirement of masks for the general population for any type of business seems to be very much an infringement of rights, not based on anything that seems to be um, grounded in any type of definitive or clinical study. And that, now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I think it's in it's in flux. It's always being debated upon and uh, talked about. But for for what we're, we're experiencing right now, I think in light of COVID, I think the general population is well informed enough that they know if you have an underlying condition, if you're elderly, if you're prone to immune disease, then stay home. And the rest of the people who are able-bodied and able to work, I think that they can independently make the decision on what to do. I mean, even before uh, the mandate happened for, for private businesses, I would be going to Walmart, and you'd have people wearing masks on their own. They just made that decision, and good for you. I mean, you decided to do that uh, and take that precaution, whether it be for yourself or for others, but that was an independent choice that you made. I, I'm not a cynic. And so I don't believe that um, people are stupid. I believe that they're smart enough to decide on their own whether or not it's a good measure to take. And the fact that private businesses and corporations are doing this, I think it's one of two things. One, I think it's just them capitulating to um, basically higher powers that are, are using scare tactics to intimidate them into doing this to their own customers, or two, it is something a little bit more sinister in terms of how it's coordinated to try and, and force a public into doing something that, by and large, they don't want to, especially in light of COVID cases. Cases are increasing, yes, because testing is, uh, is occurring, but deaths are falling, and that's, just, that's something that the media is not reporting. No, they're 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 not. You're getting it here on my show. I'll tell you that, Tim. We've we've done a lot about that, about how uh, people generally see increases in uh, infection rates, and they they assume that means there is an increase in death rates as well. But the inverse is 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 what's happening here. You're seeing in, uh, infection go up. You're seeing death rates go down. I mean, it's it, it's kind of kind of counterintuitive to most of us, but the facts, the data doesn't lie. It shows it 
unequivocally that that is what's happening across the United States. All right, we got about 13 minutes until 8. we got to get a break in, Tim. Let's do that. Then we'll come back and talk uh, uh, more. Dr. Tim Lim is our guest. Uh, as I said, his uh, vocation is an audiologist. His avocation is in the comic art field, writing, things of that nature. He's got several pieces of uh, his own product out there on the market. We're going to talk about that some. He works uh, very closely with another guy right here in Little Rock, uh, Mark Pellegrini, who's not with us today, but will be with us in the near future. With that said, here's our break and then more. If you just joined us, uh, Tim Lim is with us, Dr. Tim Lim. He's a doctor of audiology. Uh, he had been working at UAMS. His wife is in in uh, in school right now. She's down in Texas. He wanted to spend some time with her. He's down in the Texas area. Kind of got trapped down there with uh, COVID-19 now. And uh, you see yourself coming back to Arkansas anytime in the near future? Yeah, so I don't want to reveal too much, but my wife already has a contract in place when she um, when she threw at her um, residency. So oh, we're good. Gonna be there full, yeah, full time starting next year. Oh, fantastic! And I can yeah. I can have I can make you come into the studio next year by then and uh, have you be part of the show often. So uh, we're going to spend the rest of this half hour and the, all of the next hour talking with uh, Tim Lim, and there's a lot to talk about. I mean, Tim, you could not convince me, oh, I, a year ago, in fact, uh, that the cancel culture would have the kind of grip it has now in our country, and I really don't know if they have that grip or if it's because the media m- reports as though they have the grip. I, I'm I'm kind of out on that. How do you feel about it? There's a couple things that befuddle me because I thought to myself, this has happened before, but it just seems like more people are willing to bend the knee. So I think a lot of it might have to do with um, pressure that we're not seeing from um, places that we're not privy to. For example, you heard recently about the Washington Redskins. Yes. Now, if, you've, if, you've, if you talk to Mark, he'll give you a lot more, um, I guess not inside baseball, but uh, another perspective on it, because he's from the area. Yes. And his, brother, his brother and him, his brother especially is a big Redskins fan. And when he moved down here, that was actually something we would talk about. He's like, yeah, they've been trying to change that name for years. Like, yeah. they, they just stopped. But they're never going to change the name because it's just a constant grievance that pops up every now and then. So I was honestly shocked that that changed because if you look at statements made as recently as five years ago, they were saying, like, no, we're never going to change the name. We're never going to change the name. And then, poof, all of a sudden, almost overnight, they're like, yeah, we're going to change the name. And I just thought to myself, like, what is it about this particular set of circumstances that's making you have a change of heart regarding um, the changing of the name of the Washington Redskins. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And the same thing has happened recently, for example, in uh, Disney World and in Disneyland. You have Splash Mountain, which is actually themed after Song of the South. Now, it's a sanitized version of it. They don't have Uncle Remus in it. It's just nothing but cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. But as of two weeks ago, they announced that they're re-theming it from Song of the South to Princess and the Frog. And I just thought to myself, like, a lot of this that's happening on a very corporate level, the machinations in place 
are kicking in to full swing. And I don't know the impetus behind it because if I were one of these owners, I would be like, well, they can go, I don't know, pound sand because we're not changing anything. I mean, what powers do they have? But apparently there's powers that be that have are able to put leverage that was not there before on a lot of these people to cave in. Now, thankfully, you have companies like Goya recently who are just like, look, this is not hard. You just dig your heels in and that's it. You're, you're yeah. going to weather it and they'll move on to something else. And that's what they did. Um, so I don't know. I mean, if people are listening and you're a part of a big corporation, I can just say this as, as boots on the ground type, you know, because Mark and I, everything that we've done in our career is all grassroots. We, we have almost no higher support except from the Dave Ellswick show, <laughs> which we're thankful <laughs> for. But because, because we have no sponsorship, I think that keeps us grounded in reality. And so my advice I give to a lot of artists, a lot of creators and people who work in very leftist industries is dig your heels in. There's nothing they can do legally. Um, It might look bad because you're seeing people capitulating, but in my opinion, without knowing what's happening behind the scenes, I think it's a matter of personal cowardice and not something that's happening where they're they're saying like, hey, we're going to break your your legs or go after your family if you don't uh, stop doing X, Y, and Z. Well, the left, let's face it, the, the, the left that we're seeing now is a whole lot like Drago in the, in the uh, Rocky picture, I will destroy you, you know, that's, that's their motto. And I just wonder how many of these corporate uh, weenies sitting up in the boardrooms who look at the bottom line figures uh, go, well, if we lose this 2% or 3%, this is how much money it's going to, 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 uh, to cost us, where if we make the change, how much will the 94% really squeal about it? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think that um, to kind of lend credence to that, so it's interesting how, how fickle a lot of consumers can be because I remember about eight years ago, there was an ad on television you could not get away from. And <laughs> in retrospect, I think I would have rather had this eight years ago. I think it was tolerable. But do you remember how back then it seemed like every ad on television was about going green? Yep. Everything was. I mean, yes, even our car, dealership were, uh, car dealerships were like first green car dealership. And everyone who's a normal person is like, who cares? But you couldn't get away from it from, for mm-hmm. almost a year I think it was because the talking point at the time was about um, reducing our carbon footprint or some nonsense like that. And so everyone jumped on that bandwagon. And then within about a year or two's time, it just went away because it was this idea that, eh, didn't didn't sell, no one really cares, let's move on to something else. And I think what some people don't, don't realize is that the race industry, race hustling, it, the term exists for a reason because there's a mm-hmm. lot of money to be made on it. I mean, like Black Lives Matter, <laughs> they can sell T-shirts and make some money off of it. Anytime you can make a buck off of anything, you always have to look at it with skepticism because it means that it can be, um, whether the cause be good or bad, it can always be co-opted from the means of um, capital. And yeah. I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of these cases. A lot of people are taking that risk because – some genius in their marketing department probably thinks they can make a quick buck off of it. When in reality, I think you're just souring people on the whole experience. 
All right. We've got a lot more to talk with uh, and about with Tim uh, Lim. Uh, and as you probably can ascertain from our discussion thus far, nothing is off limits. We'll talk about it all, as we always do, here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, if you're listening live, this is the uh, final segment of the live segment. You can listen to the next hour uh, on uh, at 6 o'clock here on uh, uh, our show, 101.1 FM on our station. Or you can keep watching on Facebook, and uh, we're not sitting in the studio, but you can listen to what we're talking about. Or you can go to the uh, podcast, which will be ready at 10 o'clock and hear everything else we have to say. You're going to want to know. You know you're going to want to know because you've already heard some very interesting things from Tim Lim. That's all coming up as we continue uh, here on the Dave Ellswick Show. last hour of the Dave Ellswick show you're either listening to it at six o'clock on the radio watching it live as we do it on Facebook or listening to it on the podcast off of 101.1 FM uh, theanswer.com and so whichever way you're going to take it in I can guarantee you a great hour of uh Great talk, because Dr. Tim Lim is our guest. Tim is a a good friend of mine. Uh, He is uh, also a very astute observer of uh, popular culture because he he may be a uh, audiologist by trade, but by avocation, he is uh, seeped and steeped in popular culture because he works with comics and graphic novels and things of of that nov- uh, uh, ilk. So let me, let me ask this, Tim. I know that you have done a lot of work in the past doing uh, artwork for comic books like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and things of that nature. Has that work dried up for you considering how conservative you are? It has not. And I have um, That's I don't great. Think it's a novel. It's not a novel theory that I have. I just think it's uh, almost common sense. But you'll notice that cancel culture, they tend to go after the targets that are big. So once you make it to a certain point and you're recognized, it's like you become too dangerous to, to continue in that particular industry. And so that's when they start going after you. So luckily, because we work freelance, Mark and I, um, and we're very independent, we kind of stay in our own corner doing our own things, and it gets harder and harder for them to try and uh, do anything to us because, in a way, we're almost impervious. Now, um, I might be speaking too prematurely, but <laughs> I think my biggest fear really is the people who are small fry 
um, you might not be able to go after them because what are you going to get from them? You can't really get your pound of flesh. But what you can do is you can try going after people around them. And I think that that is where maybe a much bigger danger lies. I mean, um, in the earlier segment that we did, I talked about how a lot of these companies, corporations, and celebrities are bending the knee, when Mm -hmm. in reality, it's kind of like, do you have to? Because you have money, and a lot of times with money comes power, and with power comes the power to say no, and that's all you'd have to do. But when you're a smaller guy and you have nothing to lose, the people who have something to lose are the people who are around you. And I think that that's where a, a clear and present danger exists and heaven forbid someone who's connected to me you know if i say something on social media that people might not like i would i would hate for them to go after someone who can actually lose out monetarily because it's something that i did now i don't feel like it's my responsibility to capitulate or to bend the knee to that type of aggression but that doesn't mean that a guy like me is not going to think twice about um, what I need to do to protect other people. And I just hope, I, I know that I tend to my, surround myself with people who are strong in character. And I think that they would agree that the best thing to do in order for you to win any type of culture war that's going on is you do not acquiesce your beliefs and your principles to aggressors. That is, that's not an American thing to do. And I just think that that's lacking in character um, to do as well. All right. So uh, yeah, you, you bring up a really interesting point there. And, and here's what I'm, I'm kind of I kind of smile when I talk about this because I've been proven right. Uh, I've always said to cancel culture. Uh, is a is a minority. It is. It's a minority of people that uh, Marshall McLuhan, you know, I talked a little bit about this yesterday uh, when he said the medium is the message. uh, He wasn't talking about content uh, content. He was talking about at that point TV, that TV is the medium that would change the world. And it has. And uh, with that now, you've got smartphones and you've got tablets and you've got PCs, And he said that when all of that kind of stuff was going to happen, and he didn't name smartphones and all that, he wasn't that out there that he could say it. He wasn't like Jules Verne. But what he did say was we would, we would become a tribal uh, world, and we're becoming that. Uh, we are that, in fact, in that you get small groups that identify with each other, for instance, uh, using their smartphones and using Twitter or using Facebook or whatever. And you don't know exactly how many people are involved in that group, but that becomes your tribe. And the tribe of uh, the cancel culture tread in dangerous areas as far as I'm concerned. Because, and, and, and this is something everybody's got to understand, they will eat their own. If you're someone who is politically leaning left, and I mean leaning left, you believe in more taxes, you believe in, uh, you know, doing uh, affirmative action and all the things that uh, progressives have pushed over the years uh, from uh, Woodrow Wilson on, you're at danger, too, because the cancel culture will come after you no matter what. For instance, uh, Haley uh, Haley Berry, uh, Haley, um, 
I'm trying to think of her name now. The actress. Halle Berry. Yeah, Halle Berry. Thank you. Uh, took a part as a trans man for a, a movie, and she had to, as you say, bend the knee to the left and say, no, I should have understood that a straight woman can't play a trans man, that only a transsexual man can play a transsexual in a movie completely disavowing the whole thing about what is the definition of acting. So that happened. You got Disney, who has, of course, been moving left for years now in the sights of the people who are the cancel culture, and they want them to pull down Hamilton, of all things, off of the Disney Channel. I mean, they will eat their own, and they have begun munching on their own now. That's the danger of the cancel culture. Yeah, and the problem with um, cancel culture is, uh, I was having this conversation with Mark not too long ago, but you have that concept of the slippery slope, and it's considered a logical fallacy, but it's debatable. And the reason why is because if you think about how we do law, all law is based off precedent. If you're able to find a case that has occurred before, in which case a ruling was in your favor, it sets precedent for future things. And so even though the slippery slope can be a fallacy in and of itself as predictor, that's not to say that you can point out a precedent that's set and that anything that comes from that is, is used as a means of debate for taking down something else. And with regard to the cancel culture, The problem with it inherently, the reason why they eat their own, is because no man is without sin. You dig deep enough because of our own imperfections. I don't care if your only imperfection in life is tearing the tag off of a mattress. You have already (laughs) done something that is acrimonious to them. And it is something that if they dig long enough and hard enough, they're going to find And um, the problem with the left is because the current Marxist indoctrination of our youth nationwide is that they they don't create anything. Everything they do is because they hate things. Like, they have this inward hatred of themselves and the country that they look around, and it's about seeking and destroying. And there's two recent examples of how they have eaten their own kind. Actually, I can think of three, two in comics and one in fiction. So you have these two comic creators. I talked about one in the earlier segment, um, Sean Gordon Murphy. He is not uh, a right-winger at all. He is, he is definitely on the left, but he's friends with people on the right, which is good. I think that in a healthy world, you can have different political opinions and still be cordial with each other. Right, And as I, as I told you in the previous segment, he was a cover artist for Earthworm Jim, and he was doing a, a cover for, um, I'm sorry, it wasn't for Earthworm Jim, he was a cover artist for Bigfoot Bill, which is by the creator of Earthworm Jim. And uh, they pressured him into disavowing him and dropping that cover job because Doug Tenaple is a conservative, and sure enough, he capitulated. Well, it, like, he, like I said, he's on the left, and yet they put pressure on him um, to, to back away from that. Same thing recently with Warren Ellis. He is um, a very prolific and well-known comic book writer, and he got me too. So just because you're woke and just because you're, you have the same politics does not exonerate you. I mean, uh, we see the same thing that happened with, let's say, Harvey Weinstein, right? Like the darling mm-hmm. of Hollywood, no friend of the right. And uh, when they could, when there was the opportune moment to strike, they went for it. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have, 
But I'm saying that your political leanings do not inoculate you to um, them trying to target you and find anything, whether it be justified or not. Um, the eyes are on you, and your political beliefs will not protect you from it. And uh, the other example I was going to give recently was J.K. Rowling. Oh, yes. Uh, of Harry Potter. Um, apparently, she was not taking notes because here she is, kind of the darling of the left as well. I mean, heck, um, you just say you like Harry Potter. I just assume you're on the left because I, I, I have met several people on the right who like Harry Potter. But it's like everyone on the left does, because I think it's like it's like their substitute religion. Well, anyway, she um, got called out recently because she was I think she was citing an article where they said that um, even men can menstruate. <laughs> and she's like, wait a minute, what? Uh, yeah. We have a, a term for that. I think the term is women. And sure enough, like the LGBTQ barbecue, uh, you know, FYZ crowd went after <laughs> barbecue. her. And I know. And um I will say this to her credit, because I'm not a fan of her or her work. That she stood her ground. She was. She like, stuck to her gun. Yes, she did. She's like, this is completely ridiculous. Um, I I consider myself an ally, whatever that means. But let's let's be real here. Like, if you're a woman, you're a woman. If you're a man, you're a man. But that's mm-hmm. the you know, it's funny. The the, the architect of the media they consume. Um, probably the one person I thought was very much protected just by her belief system. I mean, they went after her as well for a while. And good for her. She stood her ground. You know, like we said before, broken clocks are right twice a day. So um, it just illustrates that because you share the same politics does not mean that you're in any way immunized from the cancel culture. I got you. Tim Lim is my guest. We got a break. We'll be back with more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. More really interesting discussion still to come up here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, let's continue another segment of the Dave Ellswick Show with our special guest, Dr. Tim Lim, here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. If you've missed any of this discussion, I suggest that you definitely go to our podcast at 101.1 FM, The Answer. I suggest that you share it with your friends because we're talking about really important things. We're talking about uh, the cancel culture. And every time I think about the cancel culture and how we're seeing it affect our society, it makes me think about Andrew Breitbart, who always said, that culture is upstream from politics. That if you don't understand one thing that we talk about today, understand that. What you're seeing in the culture will manifest itself in politics and can manifest it in such a way that it can affect you directly. You go along with that, Tim? I do, and uh, a thought a thought occurred to me just a second ago that I thought I would share because I think for a lot of your listeners who might be heading home on a commute if they're um, out working now um, in the post-COVID era, there was something that happened recently that got on my radar, and I have not gotten permission per se from this person to specifically say who they are and where this occurred. But uh, the one thing I can say is it occurred on the local level, and it was so shocking to me. Like, I could not believe it. Um, but I think that this person wants at least the, the story told. So there was a, a department um, on 
uh, a campus uh, here in the state of Arkansas where what happened was on a private group on Facebook, someone had said something to the effect of, well, Black Lives Matter. And this person who was part of faculty just happened to reply like, no, I think all lives matter. No, that's like saying something racist now. I know. And so here's what happened. So it turns out that some of this person's students were actually in that room when she said that. And so they brought it up to the department head and was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that uh, Dr. So-and-so said this. Uh, Like, that's uh, I'm so triggered by it. They literally held a tribunal. It was a town hall meeting. And the two people who headed it were on the far left. I mean, I per- I know these people personally, at least one of them. And I was like, oh, my God. When I heard who was on that town, quote, unquote, town hall, I was like, they are going to get fried. Because the one person that I knew, I was like, this person was the biggest leftist you could imagine. And they grilled this individual. Now, they did not force her to do uh, to leave or anything like that, but she ended up having to leave on her own volition because she just thought it. I mean, it's it's pretty much finished. Um, I don't even know what to think. The students are against me; like they've already gone so far as to basically report me. And I know that the department is run by people who don't want me there simply because of my politics. Now, if you're listening to this and you're in academia, whether you're a student or your faculty member, this should frighten you. This is a real story that had happened not longer than about two months ago, um, kind of in the wake of all of these riots happening. And part of it, I actually witnessed in real time because (laughs) I happened to see what was going on uh, in those Facebook groups. And it's just like, all lives matter. Oh my gosh, the pearl clushing. And I just thought, this is, this is complete insanity. How in the world can we take academia seriously when academia, which was supposed to be the bastion of free thought, free expression, and then the diversity of opinion and ideas, when that's no longer sacred to the point where a faculty member or a staff member can't say three simple words that are true, all lives matter. There is nothing false about that premise. When you can't even say that without being held accountable and having a tribunal, a quote-unquote town hall held to make you recant, I mean, you are in trouble. And that is one reason why whenever people are like, oh, we have to help our, our education, we have to support our teachers, I was like, well, you got to start kicking out the leftists and the communists. If you don't do that, and the only reason I'm saying that is because I feel like it's all fair and equal. If you're going to start getting rid of the conservatives or people who are not on the far left, I think fair game should be in order and we start booting you out. Now, how do you like that? If you don't Mm -hmm. like it, let's quit canceling each other and let's start having discussion. That's what people pay for when they pay for their tuition. They pay for an honest education. And the best way to have education is the same way you do business, competition, competition of ideas and competition of thought. That is how you get the most robust educational experience and how you prepare yourself for the real world. But I feel so sorry for these 20 and, and early 30-year-old students who are brought up in this nonsense Marxist ideology that makes it so that they're so easily triggered by three simple words that, in all honesty, they should be having a mature conversation about not canceling someone on their own staff or faculty for. 
Now, you could probably uh, figure that Robert Steinbach and I talk about this uh, quite often, and uh, it's important that people understand it because uh, this is why when your kids go to college and they come back and they talk like little brown shirts, it's why it's happening because they're being indoctrinated. And not now it's not just in in the college level. It's already down into the high school and elementary school levels. Yeah, it's the storm up, Tylum. They're coming after you. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we did it. I mean, Yuri Brezmanov was not wrong. If, if anyone has, is listening who doesn't know who it is, look it up on YouTube, Yuri Brezmanov. He was a KGB defector to the United States. And in the, in the 80s and 90s, he gave a series of talks about what the uh, cultural communists were doing, what the plan was all along. They knew that they were going to win. They, they knew they were going to lose. Um, kind of the the current war of culture, but they knew if they could plant the seeds early and use subversive tactics to get to um, our young people, within three generations, they they would be able to turn that around. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. Now, the good thing, though, is you bring up elementary school students, but you have Generation Z, and I think Generation Z, by nature, is very conservative. They look at what their parents are doing um, the millennial generation, and they see this debt that they're saddled with. And I think they're asking very practical questions. I mean, um, this is a generation that is growing up in the depth of the Internet where they're exposed to ideas um, that are, that are um, free-flowing all the time. And I think that that naturally adds to a rebellion so that when the teacher says, oh, yeah, you know that there's 64 genders. Well, <laughs> these students literally have the information at the palm of their hands and when they realize that their authority figures are not telling them the truth i think that that breeds conservatism because by nature um conservatism at least in its its application of values here in america um it, it makes it so that you pursue truth you cannot just fall for an empty narrative because people tell you to you're naturally uh, self-reliant and um, able to kind of think on your own all right. I know that we're getting close to uh, having to take a break here because we've got news uh, coming up, Tim. So I'm going to uh, hold on and uh, we need to take a break. So let's do our break and we'll be back with more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Tim Lim. Always a pleasure to have him on. Uh, some great conversation going on about the cancel culture and why you need to be aware of what they're doing. And I'm going to talk further with Tim about things that he might suggest uh, that we can do to fight against them. Uh, I have said that something that people should do, Tim, is uh, you've got to take more responsibility for what's going on in your schools, and you've got to show up at the school board meetings, but Really, I don't even know how well that uh, has effects anymore uh, because, uh, you know, the state tells schools what they teach and what they don't teach. And the states, you know, kowtow to what's coming out of Washington, D.C. So if that's the case, uh, the fight then becomes how long do you leave your children in public education? Uh, What do you think about that? 
No, I completely agree. And to add to that, I think that any parent who has the resources should consider homeschooling. When I was in college, it was actually considered taboo, and I really didn't understand it because I, I went to um, I was in a scholarship program at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, and I just remember we had one or two uh, students who were homeschooled, and I don't want to I don't want to use the term black sheep, but it was the idea that it was kind of a tongue in cheek type thing where it's like oh those people, but uh-huh. in my experience. Since then, um, obviously I'm a lot older now, but every person I've met who is homeschooled, they honestly are like the smartest people I've encountered. And I think it's because when they have a hands-on education in, a, in the tiny community of people who are also in that uh, homeschooled setting, um, they have this kind of natural free flow of ideas that comes not from, let's say, an authority figure, but in a more communal way. And so I think that in homeschooling, that's a, that's one surefire way of being able to at least control um, what it is that's actually being taught or what's uh, being learned by your kids. Now, the other thing I would suggest is on top of what you said about attending your parent-teacher conferences, which is essential, and being on those school boards, the other thing I would suggest to parents is when you're asking your children how was school today, Uh, Don't ask that question. And the reason why is because I can just remember this as a kid, but school is taxing on the mind. And so when a parent asks a student or their kid, how is school today? They're, I mean, where do you want to start? You're in school for, I don't know, five to seven hours. Right. A lot of things happen. But what you want is, I would say, focus on the soft sciences, because that's typically where they try to get you. So when you're driving, have your nat- have a natural conversation like, hey, uh, what do you want for dinner? Um, uh, you know, how was the weather today or whatever like that. But then you say something like, what, do you li- what, what did you learn today in history class? And then it becomes more succinct because if your teacher did a segment about why the Second Amendment only pertains to militias, that's easier for a student, uh, a kid to regurgitate because it's very specific. It's not about the girl in, in their class that they have a crush on or how they didn't make the football team. I mean, it's a very specific thing that you're targeting. I would say target history, target um, uh, literature, English classes, social studies. These are where they're trying to get your kids. Luckily, as far as science is concerned and math, outside of common core, um, even even with common core's fault, if you can get from two plus two, equals four, you're still on the right track. But when you're learning something uh, nonsensical in history, such as, oh, communism works, it's just never been tried correctly, that's right, where they get your right. kids early. Because, and, and that's one of those things where I don't even remember when I was taught that, but obviously I was taught it because I remember that that was a talking point in the back of my head. And the first time I heard someone make fun of it, I just was kind of shocked because I just thought, you know, this is the equivalent of, let's say, Christopher Columbus sailing across the, the ocean to prove the earth wasn't around, right? It's like one of these lies that your teacher tells you, and it's not until you're called out on it for the first time that you realize, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I was lied to. We just, we just, we just ate it up because it was uncontested. Yeah, let me, so let, me, let, me, let me jump in with what you're saying. When I was in school, and that's a long time ago, I was in elementary school back in the 60s uh, and high school in the early, uh, late 60s, early 70s. I remember, for instance, in my econ class, 
that we were taught, for instance, why communism doesn't work, why socialism is flawed, why capitalism is the way to go. That's the way I was taught. That is not the way students are taught today. No, it's not. And a lot of it has to do with the way academia um, functions. Most people, um, especially like if you think about it, a college education is a relatively new phenomenon as far as um, the expectation. Back in the, in the pre-war era, um, getting a college education was something very selective. And uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, it was something that was for the privileged and you typically got college education because you uh, there was a purpose to getting a higher degree. Now, just like any industry, even academia is in it to make money, right? Like, you know, we make money through tuition. The unfortunate side effect of it, though, is that you have all these college degrees, but there's no guarantee of a job that's waiting for you afterwards. A lot of people who are in academia and who stick to it and want to pursue tenure, they want it because, in a way, it insulates them from having to go outside into the real world and to work, like, blue-collar jobs. So it protects kind of an an intellectual elitist class where they're able to preserve themselves in the ivory tower and, and pontificate to people with no repercussion whatsoever. And because you have these kind of... Um, basically former Woodstock hippies of 1960s people who had a reality check when they found out that they have to grow old and do work, they, they sought the university system as a way of protection. And uh, to a lesser extent, especially with like teachers' unions, we've seen it seep into um, the high school level as well. And so you have, you have rotten eggs um, all around, through up and down through academia. Um, I honestly don't know how... I don't even know how feasible this is, but one thing I've been hearing about recently is um, just like they talk about um, police unions and how we need to be able to root out bad cops amongst the really good ones, which the vast majority of them are, in the same way, we have to find a way to root out bad teachers as well, Um, teachers who are not teaching fundamentals and meat and potatoes of education but using their authority to kind of espouse uh, Marxist rhetoric that's not really helping students in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's uh, it, academia is going to be a tough one to to topple just because of the way they have insulated themselves and protected themselves from change. So let's move on and, and talk about another subject here, and that is using taxpayers' money to propagandize uh, our people. The National Museum of African American History and Culture has been, uh, which is, you know, run by the Smithsonian, which is funded by taxpayers' dollars, is now spewing anti-white rhetoric. Uh, Here is a an example of that, uh, as you come into the National Museum of African American History and Culture, you will read this, quote, Since white people in America hold most of the political, institutional, and economic power, they receive advantages that non-white groups do not. 
These benefits and advantages of varying degrees are known as white privilege. For many white people, this can be hard to hear, understand, or accept, but it is true. If you are white in America, you have benefited from the color of your skin. First of all, uh, this is a straw man argument uh, that is being set up. And number two, you have the person who is writing this saying everything you just heard is hard to hear because it is true without any factual basis to show that it is true. And your tax money is going to be used to teach this uh, to your kids, uh, you know, that when they go in or, or to any American as they go in, because a lot of people read this stuff and they just don't they just let it go in their minds. They don't really sit and think about it. And uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, when we talk about academia, to go back to that, in your high schools and your junior high schools, be aware of the 1619 Project, which is uh, anti-history, as far as I'm concerned, that is slowly being taught to your kids. And again, that's using tax dollars to uh, brainwash your children couple things about that. <laughs> so the economist Thomas Sowell, he once said that if there's ever any statistic that tries to prove racism, uh, especially specifically whites versus blacks, if there's any statistic that tries to prove that whites um, are in any way privileged because of their standing against black people, he says to always introduce Asians into the mix. And the narrative goes poof. Now, so so welcome, welcome to the conversation, Tim Lim. You are Asian. I am, and the reason I bring this up is because okay. So for for those of you who are driving and you're a young person and you completely believe, oh yeah, you know, white people are so privileged because we're economically more advanced. Therefore, we're privileged, and we have to bend a knee and we have to apologize and everything like that. Guess what your professors never told you? Who are the two top wage earners over white people, according to census data? Asians and Jewish people. Now, Jewish people, it kind of depends because some people will lump them in with um, white people. So let's take them out of the equation for a second. Asians, their median income outperforms whites by a significant percentage. So are you telling me that I need to check my Asian privilege? Now, you look the same. They, a lot of times they'll even use things such as, like, interest and loans and being like, well, look at the interest rate for white people. Um, look how, look how, how different it is from those of blacks. Like, that's institutionalized racism. Well, look at how it is for Asians. It is much more <laughs> significant in terms of the difference. But they, they conveniently leave Asians out because when you look at the political game that they try to play, they always try to pit whites versus blacks because they know that they can guilt white people into kind of feeling very bad about um, prior grievances historically between whites and blacks. They will not introduce Asians into the mix because they know that their narrative would go poof. Now, with regard to that, I think a very funny thing, because I actually have that graphic right here, the National Museum for African American um, 
right. I want you I want you to hold this, all right? Cuz we got to get our final break in. Let's do that and then I'll give you the next segment to talk about this, all right? Tim Lim is our guest. Stay tuned. Uh, if facts and figures mean anything to you, uh, you'll want to hear what he has to say on the Dave Ellswick Show. Final segment of the Dave Ellswick Show here on a Thursday. Uh, and our guest, unless you're listening to the podcast, and you can be listening on, on any day at any time, uh, we've got Tim Lim. And Dr. Tim Lim is with us. He's an audiologist by trade. Uh, he is a... Uh, a comic book uh, illustrator, writer, put together his own comic books um, with Mark Pellegrini, and I'll give him a couple of minutes here uh, before we get into the very end of the show uh, to talk about that. But, uh, Tim, you were going to mention a study about Asian folks, and uh, I'll let you, let you say, say that, let you talk about that. Yeah, so basically what it boils down to is that Thomas Sowell, was, uh, he was a great economist. He said that if you ever want to dispel any myth about um, white privilege or white against black racism in statistics, always introduce Asians into the mix because, yes, I mean, by, by census data, white people do outperform blacks in terms of um, socioeconomic status. But the two populations that outperform whites are Asians and Jews. And so um, I was bringing up tangentially that, uh, that argument that was put forward by the uh, National Museum for African American History and Culture. Um, that narrative is easily blown out of the water. But right before we went to a break, I was actually going to bring up not uh, what they said specifically, but the thing that they hand out at the museum, which is this pamphlet. And it's a pamphlet that's called Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. Oh, my God. Because no, no, no. Here's the funny thing. Uh, the funny thing about it is, so there was a term, um, I'm pretty sure it was not coined by my friend, but our friend, he was a, a law student at uh, UCLA. And I never forgot this thing that he told us. He called it the politicization of the impolitical, okay. which means that anything you can think of that is not political in nature, people will try and find a way of politicizing. Now, he was very right because he told this to us like more than two decades ago. And one of the things that came to pass was the idea of traditional marriage. If I had asked you 15 years ago, can you define marriage for me? Most people, even grade school children would say, oh yeah, when a ma when a, 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 a woman and a man love each other, it's when they get together, right? Like that's, that's it. There's nothing political about it. That's just Yeah, it. they get married. You get married, but now it's been so politicized that you can't even say marriage is between one man and one woman. Suddenly it's the pearl, the pearl clutching, and oh my gosh, I can't believe that Dave said that, right? So yeah, right. This, is, this is really interesting. So, okay, the National Museum for African American History and Culture, they have this pamphlet that they came out with yesterday, and here's what it says. What in this is controversial? In fact, this all sounds really good. So it's a pamphlet about white people. So it says here, white dominant culture or whiteness refers to the ways white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in America, we have internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color. Here are the examples they give. Rugged individualism, self-reliance, independence and autonomy, highly valued and rewarded. 
individuals assume to be controlling in their own environment. Quote, you get what you deserve. Family structure, the nuclear family, typically a father, a mother, and 2.3 children in the ideal social unit. Husband is the breadwinner and head of the household. Wife is the homemaker and subordinate to the husband. Children should have their own rooms and be independent. Emphasis on the scientific method. <laughs> yeah. Uh, history. Based on Northern European immigrants' experience in the United States, heavy focus on the British Empire, Protestant work ethic, hard work is the key to success, work before play. What in this is controversial? Like, what is bad about any of this? <laughs> like, all, all, According to the left, all of it's controversial. Exactly. They're handing this out, trying to tell you, hey, white privilege is bad. Whiteness is something that you need to take into consideration. Here are the signs of whiteness. I, I saw this yesterday and I tweeted out, like, I don't know, being white sounds pretty cool, if you ask me. Like, <laughs> what in this is in any way a negative? But this is what the people on the left do. They present this in a way where it's like, huh, isn't this silly self-reliance? Oh, my gosh. Like, what an outdated concept. Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Please, what? please, please, all the Dave Elswick listeners, listen and don't, don't eat it up because someone tells you this stuff. Think for yourself. These are all good things. Self-reliance, work ethic, a stable household. Yeah, one, one of the things one of the things that's in that information that makes me think of black lives matter is that they're saying that the uh, nuclear family is bad and that's exactly part of the uh, uh the platform of black lives matter they got it right on their website get rid of the nuclear family and part of that reason too is because if you look at pre-1960s data Black families had the strongest average household unit in terms of a mother, a father, number of children, and the divorce rate was the lowest amongst all demographics at the time. And then now, inversely, I mean, within like four generations, we now have the stereotype of the single black woman on welfare with kids and no father around. This is not how it is this is not just because of your skin color does not determine this as the, the the yardstick for measuring what you consider to be a family unit you have been played and prior to the 1960s you were in the best position you had the most stable and healthy family unit and what the left is trying to do is they're trying to get you to stay in your own a quagmire, so to speak, or as mm -hmm. uh, Dinesh D'Souza would say, they want you on the plantation because yep. they want to keep you in a place where you're subservient and you're reliant on a government to keep you where you need to be, where you're blaming your problems constantly on the man and have big government um, basically spoon feed you. And that's not how it was. It's not how it has to be. But this is what they try to do. And uh, luckily, we have a lot of people on the right who are um, not white, who are black, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, whatever it might be, Eskimos. And they're individuals, first and foremost. Even me, uh, if you listen to me on the radio, you would never think I was Asian, but I am. I'm a first-generation immigrant. But I'm an American first, and that's how it always will be. All right. Tim Lim, we got to do it again, brother, and soon. What do you say? Anytime. I'll be back in town uh, in just a few short weeks. 
All right. Well, hopefully we can get you on before then. But thank you for the time today, Dr. Tim Lim, here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Tomorrow, uh, State Senate-elect Dan Sullivan will join us at 7 o'clock. Then Robert Steinbach and Chris uh, Corbett will be with us as well. You don't want to miss it all. We start at 6 a.m. right here on the Dave Ellswick Show.